You're listening to a message from Christian Life Ministries in Coventry, a dynamic, growing church in the heart of the nation. We pray that God will speak to you through this word and impact your life for His glory. As we come to the word of God this morning, if you're someone who likes a title to a message, then my title is this, Take a Deep Breath. Take a Deep Breath. And actually, to help us this morning, I've brought a little stethoscope that I've got here. Uh, I wonder if you could just raise a hand if you've ever had a doctor use one of these with you. Okay, thank you. So you know what I'm talking about. You go in, you're feeling pretty lousy, and they put one of these on your back normally, and it's freezing cold, yeah? They say, take a deep breath, but you're already gone, (gasps) because it's freezing cold. But anyway, a stethoscope. The reason a doctor uses it, the reason I used to use it as a physio, was because we used to want to know what was going on in someone's lungs. Is there air going in and is there air coming out? And you'd put it in different places on the lung to see what was happening in different areas of the lung. Is every area of the lung functioning? Because sometimes you can get an infection, you can get an obstruction, and it means you don't get any air in that bit of lung. You listen and it's quiet. There's nothing going on there. Sometimes you can hear a wheeze, which means your airways have got narrowed, which means it's hard for the air to get in and out, especially out. We know that life requires us to keep breathing, yeah? Breathing is extremely important, and that's why we listen to see, is their breath coming in? Is their breath coming out? Now, sometimes, not a matter of life and death, it's just good to take a deep breath. But some of you, you may have been rushing around this morning. You've been uh, getting some food sorted so that when you get home later, it's ready, Maybe you've, you know, you've just taken your children out to various groups around the building and you can sit down right now. Maybe you just want to take a deep breath. I'm aware, you know, for many of us, we just, we rush around, we sometimes get too busy, sometimes we can be anxious, and sometimes it's good just to stop and take a deep breath. Sometimes we can be a bit more sleepy than we should be in a setting, and it's good to take a deep breath, wake ourselves up. In fact, just in case that should happen, why don't we take a deep breath right now? Maybe sit up in your seat, take a big deep breath right from down here in your abdomen, lung full of breath, and out again. Feels better, yeah? And again then, big breath in, ah, and out again. We feel more alive when we're breathing in and out well. Now, I want you to hold that picture, and we're going to turn to the Word of God. It's not going to make sense immediately, but don't worry, we'll get there. But if you turn with me, we're going to read some verses from Matthew chapter 18. And I'm reading this morning from the message version of the Bible. So if you've got a different version in front of you, and some of the wording's a little different, it's just because it's a different translation. So we're reading Matthew 18, verse 15 to 35. If a fellow believer hurts you, go and tell him. Work it out between the two of you. If he listens, you've made a friend. If he won't listen, take one or two others along so that the presence of witnesses will keep things honest and try again. If he still won't listen, tell the church. And if he won't listen to the church, you'll have to start over from scratch. Confront him with the need for repentance and offer again God's forgiving love. Take this most seriously. A yes on earth is yes in heaven, and no on earth is a no in heaven. What you say to one another is eternal. I mean this. When two of you get together on anything at all on earth and make a prayer of it, my Father in heaven goes into action. When two or three of you are together because of me, you can be sure I'll be there. 
At that point, Peter got up the nerve to ask, Master, how many times do I forgive a brother or sister who hurts me? Seven? Jesus replied, seven? Hardly. Try 70 times seven. The kingdom of God is like a king who decided to square accounts with his servants. As he got underway, one servant was brought before him who'd run up a debt of $100,000. He couldn't pay up. So the king ordered the man, along with his wife, children, and goods to be auctioned off at the slave market. The poor wretch threw himself at the king's feet and begged, give me a chance, I'll pay it all back. Touched by his plea, the king let him off, erasing the debt. The servant was no sooner out of the room when he came upon one of his fellow servants who owed him $10. He seized him by the throat and demanded, pay up now. The poor wretch threw himself down and begged, give me a chance and I'll pay it all back. But he wouldn't do it. He had him arrested and put in jail until the debt was paid. And when the other servants saw this going on, they were outraged and brought a detailed report to the king. The king summoned the man and said, you evil servant, I forgave your entire debt when you begged for mercy. Shouldn't you be compelled to be merciful to your fellow servant who asked for mercy? The king was furious, put the screws to the man until he paid back his entire debt and that's exactly what my Father in heaven is going to do to each one of you who doesn't forgive unconditionally anyone who asks for mercy. Wow, the room's gone very quiet. This is one of those uncomfortable parables that Jesus tells and that Matthew seems to specialize in recounting for us. And I'm aware usually we start at the beginning of the text and we work through, but I feel the end of this parable is so shocking. We almost need to go there first so we can have ears to hear anything beyond that. In some versions, this parable is called the parable of the unmerciful servant. Here in the message, it's called a story about forgiveness. And you know, the parable itself doesn't seem that unreasonable, does it? We can imagine the scenario, someone with a massive debt, it's been called in, but the master is really kind and forgives it, writes it off. And then we see that man walk out and go to someone who owes them just a small amount. And they get them by the neck and put them against the wall and demand full payment. We, like the watchers, those looking on in the story, we would feel outraged if we saw that, wouldn't we? We would think, that is shocking. How can he do that? Of course, the money that the other servant owed him, he owed it him. He was entitled to it by rights. And yet what had gone before made it all look different. So it doesn't surprise us how the master responds. The parable doesn't seem unreasonable. However... The servant with the debt of hundreds of thousands of dollars is like you and I before God. Owing him a debt because of our sin and our rebellion before him. The only means by which we could ever, ever have had that paid or written off was because of Jesus Christ. We had no means of payment. We had no means of getting ourselves right with God or dealing with our own moral debt before him. only the mercy and forgiveness of Master God. And so because of that, because this is who it's talking to, because this is who we are like in the parable, and because of what's said at the end, it is particularly hard-hitting. If I can just take us to verse 35, this verse that comes a bit like a kick in the stomach, it says, and that's exactly what my Father in heaven is going to do to each one of you who doesn't forgive unconditionally, anyone who asks for mercy. 
You know, a couple of weeks ago, I began to prepare for this morning, and I turned to this scripture. I felt we should come to Matthew 18, but I'd forgotten this verse was there at the end. And as I read it, I was like, no, no, no. I don't want to preach that one. That's not very palatable. That's not very nice to preach. Your words are so strong, but, you know, these are the recorded words of Jesus, and Matthew passes them on to us. And you know, Jesus' words bring life. It's also true that these words of Jesus line up with his other teaching about forgiveness. We are probably, many of us, familiar with the Lord's Prayer that begins, Our Father, who art in heaven. Many of us said it every day for the three weeks in our 21 days of prayer and fasting. And we come to the line in there where it says, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Or forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. It seems even in this prayer, as Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, that these two things are inseparable. In Matthew 5, 23 and 24, Jesus introduces us to how important this issue of forgiveness and reconciliation is to Jesus. It's going to come up here on the screen. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Well, this is like coming into church this morning. Imagine the stewards are out with their pots. You've just had your envelope. You've put your check in it. Check. That shows how old I am. I still pay by check. Um, you're waiting for the bucket to come, and you suddenly remember, oh, something comes to mind, and you know you're not good with someone. It's like you saying, I can't carry on here. I need to leave my envelope on my seat, and I'm out of here because I'm going to go and be reconciled, and I'll come back. Maybe I'll make it back in time for the six, and I'll put it in the pot at the six. It's not quite how we function, but Jesus is saying, go. If you know someone has got something against you, even if you have nothing against them, but you know they're not good with you, go, go and be reconciled. Do that first. doesn't mean don't worship, but just put that bit right first. It seems that we cannot separate how I am with God and how I am with other people. The forgiveness I extend to others cannot be separated out from the forgiveness I receive from God. We want to view them separately. We want to keep them in different boxes. It would be much more comfortable if we did that, but we cannot, friends, do that. Tom Wright gives a really helpful illustration of this in his commentary on Matthew, Matthew for everyone. And I can't word it any better than him, so I'm just going to read it from the book. He says this, why does Jesus solemnly say in the last verse that those who refuse to forgive will themselves be refused forgiveness? Isn't that, to put it bluntly, so harsh as to be out of keeping with the rest of the gospel? Can't God override our failings at exactly that point? Apparently not. At least, I don't know about can't, but it seems that he won't. The New Testament speaks with one voice on this subject. Forgiveness isn't like a Christmas present that a kindly grandfather can go ahead and give to a sulky grandchild, even if the grandchild hasn't bought a single gift for anyone else. It isn't like a meal that will be waiting for you back home, even if you fail to buy a cheese sandwich and a cup of tea for a rough sleeper on the street. It's a different sort of thing altogether. Forgiveness is more like the air in your lungs. There's only room for you to inhale the next lungful when you've just breathed out the previous one. If you insist in withholding it, refusing to give someone else the kiss of life they may desperately need, you won't be able to take any more in yourself, and you'll suffocate very quickly. Whatever the spiritual 
moral and emotional equivalent of the lungs may be, and we sometimes say the heart, but that, of course, is also a metaphor. It's either open or it's closed. If it's open, able, and willing to forgive others, it will also be open to receive God's love and forgiveness. But if it's locked up to the one, it will be locked up to the other. I find this a helpful picture, the air in our lungs, that we can take a deep breath in and receive the mercy of God and his forgiveness and love, but also that we would breathe it back out albeit not with quite the same level of enrichment with oxygen and life-giving source, but nevertheless, we can breathe out the same mercy and forgiveness to those around us, who, like you and me, they don't deserve to be forgiven. They don't deserve to receive mercy, but we're just passing on what we have already received from God when we did not deserve it from him. I wonder if at this point Peter regretted asking his question. He said, how many times should I forgive my brother who hurts me? And he says, seven. And I reckon when Peter said this, he thought that Jesus was going to commend him for his generosity. I think he thought, yeah, I've got it this time. I reckon one or two. But if I say seven, Jesus is going to think that's good. Jesus says, seven. Hardly. I wonder if we look around and say, like, who have you got as a friend who you've not even apologized to seven times? It's like, for all of our relationships, they're going to need at least seven apologies and seven forgivenesses. Jesus says, how about 70 times seven? Try 70 times seven. That's 490 times. So listen, if you're here this morning and you've forgiven somebody 490 times or more, uh, you're free to go. <laughs> I have no more to say to you. Um, but I think Peter's question and Jesus' answer here served to point to the rest of us that we probably have some work to do here in this area. Because we live in a world that's full of broken, hurting people who hurt each other all the time. Usually accidentally, sometimes intentionally. As the Anglican Prayer of Confession puts it, through negligence, through weakness, through our own deliberate fault, we hurt one another. We're all still works in progress with frailties, vulnerabilities, pride, insecurity, temptations that cause us to hurt one another. Regrettably, I still hurt other people. Thank you for not amening at that point. I'm conscious there's probably numbers of people in the room who I've had to say sorry to at some point because we all do. We're not yet fully made like Jesus. We've all been hurt at some point. It's not always big things. Sometimes it can be little things. And let me share a story about a very little thing, but it illustrates maybe what goes on in our hearts. Because when I was in my early 20s, I had a friend called Kate. We'd shared a house, then we both got married. We were living in the same part of Nottingham. She was in my life group. And one evening, we had a conversation on the exciting topic of uh, tiredness and bedtimes. And that was sarcasm, in case uh, you really think that's an exciting topic. And in the conversation, I said that I actually I found it hard to get enough sleep because uh, Martin is a bit of a night owl and doesn't like to go to bed, and it all gets a bit difficult. And Kate, quite reasonably, really said, well, you need to talk to him about that. Why haven't you talked? Why haven't you two sorted that out? This is, and just gave me what was a very, very common sense approach. She's absolutely right. I did need to talk to him about it. If you've got an issue in your marriage, you do need to talk to each other about it. But the way that she said it, with a kind of presumptuous tone, I felt judged. I felt hurt. 
It was perhaps an overreaction, but that was what I felt. Let me tell you at this point, now I've now been married 22 years, and we still haven't quite sorted out this issue. We're okay, <laughs> but, but bedtimes and different body clocks is still a bit of a challenge. It doesn't mean one's right and one's wrong. I forgive you. We're good. But because of the response I was given, I felt misunderstood. I felt judged. I felt hurt. And although things moved on, the conversation moved on, the feeling of hurt didn't just go away all on its own. And I didn't like it. And actually what happened in that moment is there's a part of me somewhere I thought, I'm not going to let Kate hurt me like that again. It just closed off a little bit of my heart. And although I saw her in the same settings again, I didn't share in quite the same way. I was guarded. I closed my heart off to her. I didn't breathe out, if you like. And I'm ashamed to say that's how things stayed for a number of months. You see, so often when we are wronged, we pull back and we move away from the people who've offended us, even when people didn't mean to. And what tends to happen when we do that is the offense or the hurt or the thing that they did becomes bigger in our mind. And the preciousness of the person becomes minimized. And our perspective of the whole thing gets skewed. And of course, there's other ways of reacting when hurt, other ways that we see in the world around us. Often people think, actually, if I've been hurt by someone, then they deserve to be hurt back. You see nations across the globe at war because of a desire for revenge like this, to hurt someone back. In smaller ways, sometimes we can respond by posting something hateful on social media. How much of that is there? Or people just go and they try to tell all their friends, make sure their side of the story gets out first. Get everyone on my side before this becomes any more public. But none of these deal with the problem. None of these sort the offense out. None of these lead to reconciliation. None lead to peace. None enable us to breathe out what we've breathed in from Jesus. I wonder what's your default response when you're hurt? Mine is to withdraw and to pull back, but Jesus speaks right into that in these verses this morning. At the start, 15 to 20, he's so practical and helpful. It says, if he's answering the question, how should we respond when we're hurt? He goes on to explain to us, really, this is what you're meant to do. And he says this quite simply. If a fellow believer hurts you, go and tell him. Work it out between the two of you. Go and tell him. Work it out between the two of you. Some other versions use slightly different language. They say, point out his fault. Reprove him. I had to look up the word reprove this week. It says to correct or to criticize, especially gently, which I love because, you know, we've all probably come across someone who, so as not to withdraw, they come to see you and they've come to get it off their chest. And there is a rant that ensues and they say, you know, so as not to withdraw, so as not to be ungodly. I'm coming to put this out before you. And you're like, whoa. Anyone else experience that? Yes. It's not what Jesus is saying, especially gently. It was my friend, Kate. I came aware that my heart had closed off and that although she'd not meant any wrong, that I'd got myself in a place where I'd taken offense. And although she'd hurt me initially, I now needed to apologize because I pulled back from her. I'd taken offense at her, and so I, 
went round to her house and arrived on her doorstep and said, I'm really sorry, I need to apologize to you because I've taken offense at you and I've not kept a right heart. She was a little bit surprised, but, uh, but then we had a little conversation. And of course, it wasn't really a massive deal and it wasn't quite easy to reconcile. And that was dealt with. The following week, I found out that she was going to be my life group leader. I was so glad that I'd already had the conversation and got that out and sorted that out. And the truth was that our friendship was in a position to grow again because once you've actually uh, gone through that process with someone, you start building more real relationship because we know that we can get beyond each other's frailties and vulnerabilities to actually be committed to one another and have real meaningful relationship. But Jesus says this, just between the two of you. I wonder if we can say that together, just between the two of you. Just between the two of you. That means not passing offense on to anyone else, not telling anyone else, not telling people one at a time, not just putting it on a screen, not telling anyone else. And so often this isn't what we do because in our indignation at being hurt, often the first thing we do, instead of going to the person, is we go to find somebody else, someone else who I think will understand my point of view, yeah? We don't go to their best friend, do we? I go to my best friend. I go to the one who understands me. And I tell them how terribly so-and-so has behaved. I tell them how difficult it has been and how it's made me feel. And we share the offense. We pass it on. We receive some affirmation in the process of how reasonable it is to feel wronged. It goes a little bit like this sometimes. You know, imagine, for example, Luke upsets me in the office this week. The following day, well actually, Luke upsets me, I get upset. I then, instead of going to him to deal with it, I go and find Mark. I say, Mark, you will never believe what Luke did today. Listen to this. How am I gonna deal with this? <laughs> What's that? Mark's like, none of my business. Mark heard it in the first service, so he's got a head start. I've passed it on to Mark. But then two hours later, Luke comes to find me and says, I'm ever so sorry about that. And there's a reason why, for some reason, he didn't respond in the usual way. And he says, sorry. And I'm like, it's fine. It's not a problem at all. And we reconcile and we move on. And the offense is dealt with. But it isn't. Because the offense isn't just now between me and Luke. It's now also between Luke and Mark. But Luke doesn't know it's an offense between him and Mark because he hasn't got any sight of that because it was me that passed it on. So he doesn't know that he needs to apologize to Mark or he doesn't know that he needs to give him sight that he's apologized because it was just me that passed it on. He's done everything, Luke has done everything he should have done to come and to put it right. But because I had passed it on, we don't get to a point of being reconciled, of truly dealing with the offense. It can leave Luke and Mark with a relational issue. And you know, next week maybe they're leading the meeting and leading worship, you don't need to move away from him, Mark. It's just pretend. <laughs> it's just pretend. You know, maybe next week they're here, Luke's down to lead the meeting, and Mark's down to lead worship, but they're not quite all right with each other. And it's my fault, because I passed on the offense. That's why Jesus says, sort it just between the two of you. You know, when we rehearse our hurts, when we discuss other people's failings, when we gossip about faults and mistakes or sins of others, 
And we need to be careful not to do this pretending that we're wanting to pray. It's okay if we are wanting to pray. But when we pass on these things, we can create widening circles of relational damage, which undermine trust and unity. It's a scheme that the enemy uses time and time again to attack and to weaken and to divide the church from within. We have to guard against it, and this is how we guard against it. That's why the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, 15, see to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. And so Jesus is giving us these instructions. Sort it out just between the two of you. It's very simple, very practical, but it has far-reaching implications when we don't do it. Jesus goes on and explains, listen, if you, if you go just the two of you and it doesn't work, then, then take someone else. Get someone else involved, which hopefully will help them to be honest and responsive. If not, then get someone from church involved. And then he says, you know, if that won't work and you get the church involved and they still won't listen, then he says, you're going to have to go back to scratch with the need for repentance and love. Some versions say at this point, they record Jesus as saying, treat them like a pagan or a tax collector. Which essentially, it sounds a bit like he's saying, treat them like an outsider. But I don't actually believe that's what Jesus is saying. Because actually, if we know what Jesus did with pagans and tax collectors, is he came to give his life for them. He came to reach out to them and to bring them in. In fact, Matthew himself, who writes this parable, was a tax collector. He could remember what it was like to sit at his booth, take in the taxes, knowing that he owed a debt to Almighty God that he could never pay. But then Jesus had come and called him and found him. And then because of that, he knew that that changed him forever. Right. And so Matthew had a perspective that if somebody cannot be drawn in, if somebody cannot be entreated to give forgiveness, then at the end of the day, they've not fully understood what Jesus did for them. They've not fully understood that he's given everything. They've not fully understood that they didn't deserve it, but that he loved them anyway. If it doesn't work, you'll have to start over from scratch. The need for repentance and God's love. If somebody keeps refusing to forgive, then we must entreat them again to receive the mercy of God and pray for them that they would have a fresh revelation of all that he's done for them. See, we can only ever breathe out what we've breathed in. Jesus is not ever saying, I'll forgive you when you forgive them. He says, come and receive my forgiveness, but then pass it on. Breathe out what you have first breathed in, the undeserved forgiveness of Jesus. Of course, not all situations are straightforward. Many are complex and complicated. They can be messy. Sometimes there can be years of hurt rather than a single issue. Sometimes we may need help to talk about how we've hurt. We may need counseling. We may need prayer, even to be able to begin to deal with the complexity of how something has impacted us. We may not be able to unpick it all, but we do need to be willing to come to God and ask him to help us to open up our heart fully to him. In another situation in my late 20s, there was a member of my family with whom I'd had quite a difficult relationship for some time. There'd been a lot of difficult and confrontational conversations. There was a lot of hurt and misunderstanding on both sides, and it caused a lot of pain. 
And we kind of managed the dynamics so we could get to a place of having a functional way to interact when the family was together, but we didn't have any real trust. There wasn't really a loving relationship. And then there came a season in my life when we were invited to step up to lead a life group. And almost as soon as we said yes to this opportunity, the Holy Spirit came and spoke to me and he said, you need to apologize to that person. I mean, apologize. This is what I said to him. Holy Spirit, apologize. Apologize. I was slightly outraged that God would ask me to do this. You see, the person, well, I felt it was a two-sided issue, but I felt it was initiated by them. I also felt that because they were older than me, more mature than me, that really they should have known better. And really, if those things were true, then they should be the first to apologize. And so when the Holy Spirit came and said, you need to apologize, it's like, no, 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 that's not fair. It's not fair, Holy Spirit. I did explain fully my position. Um, Interestingly, the Holy Spirit wasn't really interested in my reasoning and uh, didn't change his mind at all. And so I think I reached a point, it's like, I know I've got to do this because the Holy Spirit's not going to let up. And so I need to do this quickly because I'm terrified about it. And so literally the next time I saw them, I just asked if I could have a moment's conversation in private. And I'm going to tell you, I felt sick. My heart was pounding. My palms were sweaty. This was somebody, it had been a difficult relationship. And also at times it had been intimidating and controlling. And I had a bit of a fear, you know, if I even go there, is this, is this going to all kick off? And yeah, I just knew I needed to do it because Holy Spirit had asked me. So I just said, I... I just want to say, I know things haven't always been very good between us, and I want to say that I'm sorry for my part in that. It's out there, and then you're waiting for what seems like days. I think it was only seconds. They said they were sorry too. They apologized for their part, and we hugged. We didn't debrief on every conversation we'd ever had. I don't think we could have done that, but we both said sorry. We expressed forgiveness. There was reconciliation as we breathed out the grace that we breathed in from Jesus. And and many years on from there, we genuinely love one another and have a relationship that I would never have thought possible from where we were. I understand that often we can feel that we don't have it in ourselves to forgive or to love, and that's normal. But we can find it in God to do those things if we will ask him. He will provide everything that is needed so that his forgiveness can flow through us. A long time ago, something else had happened to me that left me very, very hurt. And at the time, there was a church leader that helped me to process, deal with the pain, and help me to forgive. And the Lord was very kind in that season and walked closely with me. But the person who'd hurt me remained in the same church as me. It was a church of a similar size as this. And so I could just keep my distance from them. I thought that was self-preservation, and so that's what I did. Until once again, the Holy Spirit came and just put his finger on my life. It's like, why are, you, why are you keeping your distance from that person? And so it caused me to talk and to journey with God some more. And I asked God to help me to be willing to speak to them. It's not a very generous prayer, is it? But that's where I was at. I said, will you just help me to be willing to speak with them? Will you help me to want to be friendly to that person? And I really didn't expect what God did in my heart. You see, a few weeks later, I was in a park with a friend and a couple of children, and I walked around a corner and literally bumped into this person. And I was overwhelmed with joy to see them. 
That's what I felt on the inside. I was slightly taken aback by what was happening on the inside of me. I rushed to hug them because I wanted them to know that I was so pleased to see them. It may have been a bit disconcerting for them as I'd not spoken to them for some time, but that's what I did. It was truly wonderful to see them. And I realized that God, in response to my prayer, had deposited something of his love into my heart for that person. And so when I saw them, I loved them with a love that was not generated from my own heart or goodness, but was found from him. Even now, it is a great joy when I see that person in a way that doesn't really make sense to me. I didn't have it in myself, but I just needed to ask. You know, if we'll open our hearts, God will give us everything that we need to be able to forgive. I know this morning this word will be relevant for many, many people. And I know it's a challenging word, but it is also a life-giving word. If we will breathe out, then we can breathe in again the forgiveness of Jesus. But when we refuse to forgive, then we close off our own hearts. I know there'll be some of you here today, and you'll have suffered way more than I have done. And you could reasonably say today, but you don't know what it's like to sit where I sit or to try to forgive the things that have been done to me. And, and that's true. And because of that, as I come to a close, I want to share a story with you of Corrie ten Boom. She was a Dutch watchmaker who, with her family, helped to house and protect Jews from arrest by Nazis in Holland in the Second World War. And she and her sister were captured and imprisoned in a concentration camp, and her sister Betsy died there. And this excerpt is taken from her book, I'm Still Learning to Forgive, in which she describes her encounter with a guard from the camp several years later at the end of a talk that she'd just given. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush, a huge room and its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein, how good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among all those thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he didn't remember me. But since that time, he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, his hand came out, will you forgive me? And I stood there, I whose sins had again and again to be forgiven, and I could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I'd ever had to do. 
for I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who've injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. For since the end of the war, I'd had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. And those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. But those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart, but forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Help, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling, Lord. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the wand stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Father, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. You might be here this morning and you, you know that there's someone you need to be reconciled with or there's someone that you need to extend forgiveness to. Maybe someone you need to say sorry to. Sorry is such a powerful word. If you've never been able to say the word sorry, ask the Lord to help you. You're going to need it to get through life as he designed you to. You may be aware of one of those things this morning. You, you may not. And in a moment, we're going to, by way of response, come to the communion table. And we're going to come and receive again from our master who has written off our debt. Because of his broken body and because of his poured out blood, we're going to come and receive again from him the forgiveness, the cleansing, the love and the grace and the mercy of the one who made everything. Undeserving as we are, we're going to come and receive what's been freely given. I want to invite us to examine our hearts as we come this morning. If you like to allow the Holy Spirit to come with his stethoscope and put it on the different parts of your heart to think, to listen, is forgiveness coming in? Is forgiveness coming out? The psalmist wisely prayed this prayer, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. As we come to the table today, I want to invite everyone to come and to take of the bread and to take of the cup, but then to take another piece of the bread to go and share with someone else in the room. You can take it and you can simply go and bless them. Pray your best prayer for them. But if this morning you know there's someone in the room that you need to be reconciled with, then take that moment to take it to them. 
maybe just to say, I'm, I'm sorry. You don't need a massive conversation in this moment, but even just to give them the bread, to say that I'm sorry things have not been as they should. I'm asking every one of us in the morning, in, here this morning to take another piece of bread and give it to somebody. This will make it easy for those who've got some business of reconciling to do without it being obvious to all of us who those people are. But as we come to the table, that we're gonna take a deep breath in this morning and also breathe out his forgiveness, his grace, and his love. If you go to pray with someone, go with humility. Go to bless them. Go as one forgiven only because of the sacrifice and mercy of Jesus. Let's take a moment to pray in quiet. Father, we thank you again this morning that like the master in the story, you have written off our debt. That we could never pay ourselves and you've made it as nothing through the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you that you forgive us and that you cleanse us. You pour out grace and mercy into our lives. Please help us to keep our hearts wide open to your divine flow. As we wouldn't withhold that from others, but we would pass on what you have given to us, that we might keep receiving from you your grace, your forgiveness, your mercy. And so we pray as we come to your table this morning, Father, meet every heart, meet every life, fill them again afresh with your mercy, with your forgiveness, with your presence, your enabling power, that we might live as you call us to live. We ask it in your precious name, Jesus. Amen.